Really fast before we get started, I am the youth director, so I would like to invite two of my students up to help me with a little game and analogy. I'd like to invite Zane and Jonah up, please. You guys can give them a round of applause, give them some encouragement, you know. So they're going to do a quick game really fast, given a few utensils. They will have a tube of toothpaste, a plate, so as not to make too much of a mess because I don't want to stay after too late cleaning up and interrupt the business meeting, and a toothpick. The task will be simple. They will dump the toothpaste out on the plate, and then we will start timing them to put as much toothpaste as they can back in the tube using the toothpick. Now, without further ado, grab your toothpaste tube, and when I say go, actually don't get it on your toothpick. I'd take a toothpick off, Zane. <laughs> All right, ready, go. They're not going as fast as I thought they would. Yeah. <laughs> you got to put it all out. All of it. Come on. Man, why are you guys going so slow? Okay, so truth in advertising, I thought it would take them like five seconds to do this part of it, so I'd have a great analogy, but I don't. So uh, we're just going to let them dump this toothpaste, continue to dump it, and dump it. <laughs> And keep dumping it. Yay, yay. I should have put music to this, like Jeopardy. Do, 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 do. <laughs> okay. Yeah, are almost there. Almost there. Yeah. You okay, Joe? <laughs> Zane, you got it all over your hand, man. <laughs> all right. That's good. That's good. Don't put it on my hand, please. <laughs> all right. Now, the real task begins. I got 10.35, or 36 by the back clock. All right, start to put it back now. Go. Ooh. Well, that's going to take them a little while, so why doesn't everyone stand? We're in the book of James. We're going to go ahead. We're in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> so, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We are all, sorry, I have ADD, sorry. <laughs> we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouth of horses, to make them, man, this is too distracting. Okay, put bits in the mouths of horses to make them do what we want, make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are stirred by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body that makes great boast. Consider what great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and itself on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed or have been tamed. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who, who have been made in God's likeness. 
Out of the same mouth come praises and curses. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear frigs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Let's pray. God, I ask you to be with me as I bring this message. Lord, may it be none of me. May my flesh, my weakness, and my inadequacy be pushed to the side and speak through me, Lord, what you have for your congregation and your church. God, it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. As you guys can see, they're still very much struggling with this. Should we let them struggle for a little while longer? All right, the vote is in, boys. You're going to have to stay there for a little while longer. All right, so I had a boss once that told me, how do you eat an elephant? And I was like, that is a weird thing to talk about, right? How do you eat an elephant? Well, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. That's a huge chunk of scripture that I just took on right there. Also, very much preaching to myself this morning because I have a huge struggle with taming my own tongue. So we're going to eat this elephant one bite at a time. The first section we're going to take apart is James, is, uh, is, and James is the uh, verses one and two. Who's he talking to? Teachers. What's he warning about? They will be judged more strictly. This has both a current practical application, right? Anyone who's ever given a presentation at work, led a small group, or talked to any group of people know that there is no shortness of people waiting to say, hey, you cracked too many jokes. Hey, you did this. You did that. You looked to the right too much. You didn't look to the left. Why were you not making eye contact with me? I felt like you looked like everyone but me. There's always that instant feedback ready for you. So you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not a teacher. I don't have to worry about this, right? So let's just pull the audience really fast. Who believes they are a teacher? Raise your hand. A little more than I thought would raise their hand. That's awesome. Well, I'm here to rain on your parade if you didn't raise your hand because everyone is a teacher. If we look at Jesus' own words found in Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to be in verse 18. Most of you probably know this. This is the Great Commission, but these are Jesus' own words. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Sorry, I lost my place. And teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So what does Jesus challenge us with? Make disciples, baptize, and teach. Yes, that's right. So congratulations. We are all teachers. Whether you stand on the stage, you talk to a congregation, you lead a small group, or you're just talking to your friends about Jesus, you are now a teacher. So guess what? You're now in the new category of you're going to be judged more strictly, which, as a matter of fact, in a side note, this is one of two passages in the Bible that terrifies me. Uh, I'll tell you the other one at a later date, but we see that. So what could James possibly be warning us about here? The best intentions can always be misconstrued. Anytime you add a human element to God's word, you dilute God's word, whether it's more restrictive to God's word or more lenient to God's word. And the first time we see that is the first ever instruction given to man found in Genesis chapter two. 
we see that man, oh man, hang on. Yeah, they're getting some of it in there. Okay, so we see God, he sets man in the garden and he says, hey, work this garden. You can eat from any tree in the garden. Now I'm paraphrasing. The scripture's up there so you can quote me and call me a heretic later. But <laughs> he says you can eat from any tree in this garden except for the one in the center, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Now you notice God's exact words are, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or you will certainly die. Now we see, the next encounter we see is in Genesis chapter 3, and that's with the serpent and Eve. And we notice a few key things here. I'm just going to read it. You'll pick up on it. And if you don't, don't worry. I'll make it abundantly clear. So Eve says to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. There's a key determining factor there of difference. For whatever reason, there's no, there's no history of Eve talking directly to God. For whatever reason, Adam thought, let's add this extra safety control measure here. Let's add a little bit. Well, if I tell, maybe we shouldn't even touch it. We've all done this at some level. I do it with my kids. My grandfather did it with me when I was a child. My grandfather was a man's man. I was raised by this guy, Hunter Fisher, living off the land. Like, if you ever watched Duck Dynasty, he was Phil Robertson minus the beard. Like, he's just a grizzly guy, Korean War vet. And I wanted to be like him so much. So one day we were fishing, and we just weren't catching fish. And for whatever reason, maybe my grandfather wanted a little more peace and quiet. Maybe, maybe he just wanted me to stop talking. My wife can attest, I don't really talk that much. <laughs> so maybe he's like, hey, let's, let's get this kid to just shut up for a minute so I can finish, so I can have some peace because we're not catching fish. I'm not having fun. He told me that the fish weren't biting because they could hear me talking through the line that was in the water. Now, I don't look very cool with this because I'm about to say something very embarrassing. I was an adult, and I went fishing with my buddies, <laughs> and I recorded the same thing to them when we weren't catching fish, to which they berated me and made fun of me, and it was at that moment that I realized my grandfather had diluted the fishing process to me, much like Adam diluted God's word to Eve. So I was sitting there struggling, trying to figure out, what am I going to deal with? What am I going to do? I would say to you that this is the key here, is to not dilute God's word. James is warning us against the potential dilution of God's word is so tempting. But also we have to remember that the Bible is written for us, not to us. It's not directly written to us. You got to think of the Bible as like a map. The map wasn't designed specifically for you to use, but you use the map. So it's a pathway for us. So what was going on in the first century when James wrote the book? We heard about Pharisees. We know about the teachers of the law. Rabbi was considered a high position. Fisherman, carpenter, anything like that was considered like a lay person position. So not only does James warn us against that, which is just echoing his big brother, Jesus, Lord and Savior, no big deal. Um, he, uh, Jesus warns us about that too. And we see that in Mark. Jesus warns us, this is just James echoing that warning from Jesus so that we're not getting 
enthralled in the position of authority, feeling like we're above everyone else by being a teacher, a position of stature. Jesus says, watch out for those teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogue and in places of honor and banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. What this tells us is a warning to us to not believe our own hype. We do nothing without Jesus. We can do nothing without him. I'm going I'm to go ahead and pause for a second and say, these guys are good. Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> I feel like it's getting a little out of control. So go ahead and uh, grab a seat, guys. (laughs) Because I will totally get stuck in this and forget to call you guys up. So please wipe your hands. Uh, Very, very good demonstration, gentlemen. That was roughly about 10 minutes, maybe a little over 10 minutes, because I did pontificate a little longer than I intended to right there. So... Back to Jesus warning us against being like those, those people. At the end of the day, what we have to realize is we are just sinners trying to help sinners follow Jesus. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing special about anyone on staff here. The elders, I'm sorry, they'll probably throw rocks at me later. There's nothing special about the elders. We're all just sinners trying to help sinners follow Jesus. And this is made evident when we look in the words of God We look in the gospel and we look specifically at one of the most popular New Testament verses, but I'm going to add another verse to it is John 3, 16 through 17. And that's for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. What we see in that is the most important thing. If you take nothing else away from my ramblings up here, making them play with toothpaste, take away one thing, that Jesus is the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero. Everyone has a great story. Everyone has their testimony of how they became a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have a great story, and I'm not discrediting that. I have a story too. I feel like it's a pretty good one. But the only thing I did in that story that amounted to anything was I fell to my knees and I cried and I begged God for forgiveness. That was the only action I did that was worth anything in the entire process. Jesus is the hero. I'm not the hero. I will not save anyone. No one can save anyone without Jesus. The other thing we take away from that passage is that Jesus teaches us inclusion, not exclusion. Jesus, he's sent to the world not to condemn the world, So that's not on us to condemn people for their sin. It's not on us to say, as Beth said earlier, someone's not acting like I thought they should be because I'm praying for them. That's not on you. It's not on me to do that. Because Jesus was here just to save the world. We're just meant to be that light. So how do we do that? How do we control our tongues so that we don't overspeak in those situations? When we're getting challenged, we're feeling frustrated, The best way we can sum this up is the analogy that James gives us in verses 3 through 4. It's the analogy of a horse in a boat. Now, I did not have a ship rudder to bring in here 
Plus, I don't have any pictures of me and my family next to a ship, which is the next thing I'm going to show you. But I had uh, some nice people loan me some horse bits. And luckily, although I'm not an equestrian, I think is what it's called, I'm not much of an equestrian. I've ridden a horse or two in my life, but uh, I have a youth volunteer who is, and she explained to me how this works. So I'm going to take 10 seconds to explain to you how the horse bit works. Uh, and if I'm wrong, she'll definitely raise her hand or take her opportunity to tell me afterwards. <laughs> so um, basically, there's a place in the horse's mouth where this thing goes. I'm not going to put it in my mouth because, number one, I don't know if it's clean. Number two, yeah, whatever. So there's a place in the horse's mouth where this thing goes. It rests in there. And when you want to control the horse, their tongue has to be under this. If you don't seat it properly in that place, the tongue can get over it, and then you have no control over the horse because this apparently causes a little bit of pain to remind the horse that you're in charge. Just like holding your own tongue in certain situations may cause you just a little bit of pain, but it reminds you that God is in charge. So we look at this next picture. When we think about this, this is just a chance for me to show off my family and also uh, a beautiful Clydesdale. When I think about horses, I think about Clydesdales, right? Because I met my lovely wife in St. Louis, Missouri. Spent a lot of my adult life there. And we used to go to uh, Anheuser-Busch because they had a great free tour, a lot of history. That family's deep in St. Louis. They did a lot of great things for the city. I'm a big history guy. I loved it. But the main reason we went was the horses, right? Now, this was a Facebook picture. So the horse's head got cut off. That's why I shared the other picture of the beautiful, majestic horse. But you could see that is me, my wife, and little Zane in his pink shirt and uh, Grayson being held by his mom and John being held by me. Since then, we've had Jackson. Jackson was unfortunately not with us when we were in St. Louis. But I show you this picture to show you that I'm a man, 6'3", 6'4", depending on which convenience store I'm leaving at the time and what type of balance I have in my feet or who's measuring me for my army height and weight. Clearly, that horse towers over me. I'm going to do nothing to that horse, even though I'm a fairly decent-sized man and I'm pretty confident in my abilities. If I were to jump on top of that horse and, like, say, giddy up or whatever the proper term is, I'm going to get thrown, trampled, potentially hurt. But if I put this in his mouth, you'll see that someone smaller than me can control that same beautiful horse. She clearly is smaller than me, uh, not as tall, not as, you know, dad bod. So uh, <laughs> that's a struggle she's going to have to deal with. But she is controlling that horse. And so we might be asking, what, what is our bit? I know I was asking that when I was preparing for this. What is our bit? Because we, James told us we can't control the tongue ourselves. See, me, if, I, if I'm left to my own devices, I follow the 21st century philosopher Michael Gary Scott with my approach to speaking, and that is sometimes I'll just start a sentence. I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. He called that an improvisation. Great philosopher, said a lot of, said a lot of great, meaningful things, but that sums up how I personally, and if you think, and are truly honest with yourself, how you probably would act without a bit, without a guiding piece. Now, in true fashion, I'm going to ask those two gentlemen to come back up here. 
because I would like to take a minute and talk about another great philosopher, the wisest man to ever live. Is it on? Okay. And that is uh, King Solomon. I think Zane's reading first. So uh, we're going to just listen to some wise words from King Solomon. You can turn around and read it off of there if you can't. Zane has bad eyesight. I apologize. The words of the reckless like swords. Oh, wait, no, hold on. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Awesome. Thank you, Zane. You're good. Go on and sit down, buddy. And next. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked concedes violence or conceals violence. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Give them another hand. You know, they're, they're doing a great job. Helping me out, limping me along, carrying me. And then the last one that we have from King Solomon in Proverbs is, anxiety weighs down the heart, but kind words cheer it up. This is something that's very dear to me because as someone who suffers from a plethora of mental issues, uh, anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, thank you, United States government, for most of that, um, but I, I get down, I get stuck with uncertainty just petrifies me. And it gets me to a point where I will just be stuck in a spiral. But God uses my lovely wife and uh, she just says the most simple thing. God's in control. God's got a plan. It's going to be okay. She doesn't say we're going to have a $10 million house and I'm going to drive a Maserati. She's not doing like Adam diluting the word of God. She's just doing the simple little action of telling me that everything is going to be okay. That brings me to the next chunk in James that we're dissecting as we're eating this elephant. We're, I'm reminded of when, how the tongue can bring good things, right? Just like Solomon said. But the tongue can also do things like Michael Scott and just be like, ah, we'll figure it out. Maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. So, I, when I break it down and when I look at James' words, I'm reminded of the spark that starts a forest fire. It only takes a little spark to start a fire. I'm reminded that my tongue is full of deadly poison. My tongue, without a bit, without a control measure, is going to run rapid. Run everywhere, run me into the ground. And I'm also reminded of the Apostle Peter who we all know, the Apostle Peter. Uh, I relate to him a lot more than any of the other apostles because he's well-documented of consistently putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, I'd like to talk really briefly about a situation where the Apostle Peter, you know, kind of put his foot in his mouth. So Jesus, we all know Jesus was crucified for our sins, but he was spending some time with his apostles in the garden. Uh, this is found in Matthew uh, 26. There we go. Okay, so Jesus is spending time with his apostles, and he's letting them know what's going to happen. And he tells Peter, he's like, hey, just so you know, you're going to deny me. You're, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, nah, you're wrong, God. Uh, I, I got you covered. I'm not going to deny you. He even went as far as saying, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. There's the spark, right? And then every other apostle's like, yeah, we're the same thing. When they came to arrest Jesus, everyone scattered. <laughs> Jesus went alone. 
Peter followed at a distance. But then we see, not even a full chapter later, and later in Matthew, Peter's already denying Jesus. The first time he's approached by a servant girl, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know Jesus. But they're like, yeah, you, you sound like him. You talk like him. Weren't you with him? I mean, he was with the guy for three years. And chances are someone's seen you guys hanging out. You know, like, I hang out with my wife. You know, I couldn't three years later be like, oh, I don't know her. Clearly, I know her. Um, second time, he's called out. and He says he still does not know Jesus with an oath. The third time, he actually begins to call down curses and be like, I swear, I don't know this guy. The guy who just 10 seconds earlier, probably a few hours earlier, was like, I will die with you. Says, nah, I don't know this guy. I have no clue who he is. So this is the Michael Scott phase of Peter's life. <laughs> of, uh, yeah, Peter's life. But then we look, and after Peter's reconciled, Jesus dies for our sins, rose from the dead, he reconciles Peter. Peter repents. We see Peter on the eve of the most popular sermon ever given, the day of Pentecost, where he's cutting people's heart to the quick. He's given a profound word of God. And everyone's like, what do we do? What do we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized. He wasn't like, hey, I got this. I'm leading the way. He's like, repent and be baptized for your sins that you might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He never takes, I'm doing this. He doesn't have that type of attitude because he has his bit. Which brings me to the point, what is our bit? James tells us that we can't control our own tongue. What can control our tongue? Only the Holy Spirit can control our tongue. We have to give the Holy Spirit the room to move. We have to give him room to guide us so that we don't make the mistake of being arrogant enough to think that we can add to God's word to protect people. So we don't make the mistake of thinking that if we subtract a little from God's word, we can protect someone. So we don't make the mistake of starting a sentence and just talking and hoping we find ourselves along the way. Now, this brings me to our, our volunteers and their tube of toothpaste. Anyone who's ever done anything in children's ministry probably knows or has known this. Use this as an example. I don't know if you guys can see. I don't really want to spill it, but yeah, they didn't get a lot done in 10 minutes, right? They probably got it out in like 15 seconds. I was hoping it was 10 because that would have been a nice even thing, but we'll, we'll give them 15 seconds. That's the way we need to look at what we say. That's why we need to guard our words and we need to use the bit of the Holy Spirit because once the words are out, you can't put them back in. Doesn't matter if you ask for forgiveness. Doesn't matter if you reconcile with that person. You stand potential as a teacher as a leader and a follower of Christ of potentially damaging someone permanently with your words and actions. That's why it is crucial that we seek guidance from the Holy Spirit to be our bit. Now I'd like to invite the band back up here while I pray. Or we didn't, Sorry, we didn't rehearse this. So I'm going to pray and someone's going to magically come up here and potentially sing something because you will take off running out that door super fast if I start singing, I promise you. All right, let's pray. God, I just thank you for today. Thank you that you're Lord over everything, that you work through the little glitches, the little inadequacies that we may have, God, and that your grace shines through your power, and that it's all about you, Lord. You're the hero of the story. 
we're just fortunate enough to be the supporting cast. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.